two, spy watching. Who watches the agencies that watch everybody else? SPIA researcher and professor Dr. Locke K. Johnson recently published a paradigmatic book documenting his groundbreaking research and intelligence studies over the past 40 years. Spy Watching, Johnson's book published by Oxford University Press, discusses intelligence accountability through interviews, oral histories, and Johnson's thoughtful analysis. In this episode of the SPIA spinoff, Dr. Johnson tells us about how he first became immersed in this topic in 1975 when he gained an inside perspective on the Church Committee, the senatorial committee created to define intelligence accountability after it was revealed that the CIA was spying on American citizens, demonstrating against the Vietnam War and participating in the fight for civil rights. I'm Shelby Stewart, and this is the SPIA spinoff. Part 1, Spy Watching and the Church Committee. Well, in a way, spy watching is a, a life work. This is a topic I've been researching and studying since 1975. Wow. And that year, I was the assistant to Senator Frank Church, mm -hmm. a Democrat of Idaho. And he had been selected by the Senate leadership to head up an investigation into the CIA because a couple of months before that, the New York Times had reported that the CIA was spying on American citizens, essentially Vietnam War protesters, mm. uh, which is obviously in clear violation of what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be a foreign-oriented agency, not spying on U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a blockbuster revelation by the New York Times, carried by every newspaper across the country. It was a big deal in 1975. The story broke in late 74. And so, uh, about six years before that, I had been an American political science congressional fellow, which is a great fellowship program. I got it my last year in grad school by luck, I'm sure. And it allows you go, to go back to Washington, D.C. and pick any member of the entire U.S. Congress to work for that you want to. Wow. And they are happy to take you on because they know they're getting someone for free and someone who's well-educated. Mm -hmm. And I had admired Frank Church at the time because I was very much against the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And he had been, I thought, the most articulate opponent of that war. So I went by his office and asked him if I could join him for the year, and he said yes. And so I got to know Frank Church that year. In fact, that year, President Nixon invaded Cambodia which seemed to be an expansion of the war in Vietnam. And so people across this country went wild about that, that we were trying to wind down the war, not ex expand it. Mm -hmm. So the greatest um, protests in the history of the United States in terms of numbers of people participating occurred in May of 1970 as a result of this invasion. And uh, that's exactly when I was in Church's office. So I worked with him on trying to close down that extension of the war into Cambodia, which we did. It was so exciting because you'd go out into the halls of Congress and you could barely move because it was so packed with protesters. Mm -hmm. People were very upset about that. Because after all, Richard Nixon had promised to end the war, not expand it. Mm -hmm. So I got to know him that year and then I thought, well, I could stay here and work for him or I could use my PhD and do what I originally thought I'd do and that is teach. Mm -hmm. So I decided to, to teach and I went to UNC, Chapel Hill. And then I went out to San Francisco and taught at the University of San Francisco State. I guess it's called University of California, San Francisco. And then Church was named to this committee. And he called me up and said, you, can you come back and help me? And I said, I don't know anything about the CIA. And he said, well, yes, but we've worked together. And I'd love for you to come back. 
So the next 16 months, I was the chairman of this committee's top aide, wow. which meant I went to every single hearing and everything that went on I was involved in. At the end of doing that for 16 months, I was the most well-educated academic in the United States on the CIA by default because I was one of the few who had the opportunity to, to look at all their programs from the inside. And so, again, uh, I thought I'd rejoin academe and I started looking around for jobs and the best one I could find, and I was very pleased with it, was right here. Mm -hmm. So I came down here and I've been here ever since and used um, intelligence as a, as a major research area. And what particularly interested me about intelligence was how do you have these secret agencies inside an open democratic society? It's a, it's a really interesting theoretical problem because you need these agencies to help protect you against dangers in the world. But as we learn from the New York Times reporting, they can turn against you as well. So how do you find that balance? And that's what this book is all about. Hmm. So in the book, I talk about these 17 major spy agencies and what they do. And then I talk about how intelligence was an exception to the Madisonian model of checks and balances from 1787, the Constitutional Convention, all the way up until the Church Committee. These agencies were outside the framework of American government because they were considered very fragile and their work was sensitive. So they wouldn't have to report to Congress on a regular basis. They would have to keep the president generally informed about what they were doing and they'd follow the orders of the president. But by and large, they would sort of out there on their own, which proved to be quite dangerous. So. I talk about that exceptionalism and why it came to an end because of the New York Times reporting and what we did on the Church Committee to bring these agencies back into the Madisonian framework. And some of them desperately needed better accountability. The FBI was really pretty outrageous in some of the things it did. The CIA was spying on American citizens, which was bad enough, but the FBI was doing that plus trying to disrupt their lives and mm. break up marriages. and. You know, make people get fired from their jobs for one of two reasons. They were protesting against the war in Vietnam, or they were part of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI at the time, was, was very pro-war, and he was probably the most notorious racist in the United States. So these agencies needed to be reined in, and the Church Committee decided the best way to do that would be to have a standing oversight committee which we created in 1976, and it's called the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Then the House did the same thing the following year. So the first time in the, what would it be, over 200-year history of this country at the time, we had finally some checks and balances in the hidden side of government. Mm. And the next step was to arm these committees with some authority. And so we passed various laws to do that. Probably the most important one was the 1974 Hughes-Ryan Act, which forced the executive branch to report on covert actions to both the Senate and the House Committee. Covert actions are really in the domain of trying to manipulate history in some way. So the Russians now are accused of trying to manipulate our, our elections, which I think they did. 
we've been doing that kind of thing all over the world for ever since the CIA was created in 1947. And other things, just like the Russians, we, we've done much worse things in manipulating elections. We've tried to destroy economies, we've bribed political parties and politicians, we've even tried to kill people through assassination plots. So this is a very dark side of American government. And the Hughes-Ryan Act at least said, we require the president henceforth to let members of Congress know what these activities are. So there's an opportunity for members of Congress to say, wait a minute, that's crazy, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And then we passed the 1980 Intelligence Oversight Act, which really was powerful. Hughes Ryan had ex post facto reporting. You could go ahead and carry out an operation and you had to tell the Congress about it. So the, the horse was already out of the barn. With the 1980 Intelligence Oversight Act, we required prior notice, anti facto reporting, mm -hmm. which gave real power to the notion of spy watching. And so we've had a number of experiments like this. The, the, the saddest part about the whole thing is that even with all that effort to bring these agencies into the regular framework of American government, we ended up with the Iran-Contra affair in 1986-87, which defied all of these laws. The committees proved to be irrelevant, the laws were ignored. So it is a basic lesson in government. I mean, it's one thing to have good laws, and that's important. We are a nation of laws, not men, as John Adams said a long time ago. But beyond that, you've got to have people in a high office of character and honor and integrity. And that was the lesson of Iran-Contra. Hmm. Yes, oversight committees, yes, oversight laws, but also good people who are going to honor those laws. Mm -hmm. And I think since Iran-Contra, we've, we've learned to be even more vigilant in our scrutiny of these agencies. So that at the time of Iran-Contra, the Senate committee and the House committee brought witnesses up and put them before the committee and said, now, we hear rumors that you're involved in Iran-Contra, is that true? And top flight people like the National Security Advisor John Poindexter said, of course not, we would never do that. And of course they were exactly doing that. So one thing we've learned is that when you call people up to talk about things like that, you put this hand up in the air, this one on the Bible, and swear them in. Even that's not a 100% guarantee, but that's what they should have done at the time, because people I'm a little nervous about committing perjury. I could send them to jail for a long time. Mm -hmm. So in other words, after Iran-Contra, these procedures became even more, uh, e even tighter than they were before. Mm -hmm. And then in this book, I talk about how the leaders of the CIA have viewed all this new oversight, and it's a long range. I've interviewed every one of them since uh, mm. the 60s. And some of them say, this is horrible leave us alone, we're doing important work, don't get in our way. One of the top people said to me once, Professor Johnson, you're always trying to put on the brakes. We don't need brakes, we need horsepower. So, there's that point of view. Then there are others who I view as much more enlightened who say, yeah, well, we needed, we needed this. We needed someone to be watching us because power corrupts and <laughs> so, in one of the chapters, I talk about this array of opinion and why the people who don't believe in the new oversight are wrong. And then I have a, a chapter on covert action, which is the toughest thing to, to monitor, I think. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And then a concluding chapter about how we have a long ways to go to make things even better. Part two, the importance of the media. Yeah, I have a chapter on the media. Mm -hmm. The media is so, so valuable. I mean, if you go back to the Weimar Republic, I think the reason Hitler was so successful in turning the Weimar democracy into a dictatorship is because he didn't have to deal that much with the free press. He didn't have to deal with a Congress that was independent and strong. But now, today, and many people who don't like Trump are very happy about this, there are a lot of obstacles in the way of a president trying to really take things over. So the media is extremely important. In fact, my mentor was a fellow at Vanderbilt University. His name is Ransom, R-A-N-S-O-M, Harry Ransom. And he was really a, an early pioneer in the study of the secret side of government. And he said to me, you know, Congress is important as an overseer, but the most important check on the secret agencies is the media. Mm -hmm. And the media are always trying to find out what these agencies are doing in part because that's how you win a Pulitzer Prize, is to have a, coup, um, a scoop about an intelligence operation that is foolish. So the media is extremely important. In this chapter, I point out how, if you look at many of the discoveries by Congress about malfeasance within the intelligence community, those discoveries sprang from investigative journalism. But I, in the chapter, I also point out that there have been some times when the, the journalists have not gotten it right, and when Congress has done some things independently that were very important. But so it's you need both. You need strong congressional oversight mm -hmm. and executive branch oversight too, which I talk about. But you also need a strong independent press. I've gotten to know the top people in the New York Times who cover intelligence because they're always calling me up and asking me about it. Mm -hmm. And um, they are really first-rate people. You can imagine being a journalist with the New York Times. You have to be good. Absolutely. And so they do a lot of good work. One of my friends up there right now is working on uh, the whole question of drones and what the future of drones are. You know, drones have become the most lethal killing instrument hmm. of the CIA in, in our country's history. CIA's history going back to 47. So there are a lot of questions about when we should use drones, uh, how we make sure we don't have civilian casualties, um, what do we do when we're targeting, targeting an American citizen? Mm -hmm. And the CIA using drones has killed two or three American citizens. They happen to have been in Yemen. But what mm -hmm. if they were in L.A.? Would that still be legitimate? So there's a lot of important questions here. Yeah. And who should approve the targeting of these people, particularly American citizens? And for a while there, there was a policy in the Obama administration. Uh, <laughs> I always think of Obama as a kind of enlightened, well-educated, moral individual. But during his administration, they developed what's called signature targets. And the idea was any male between the ages of 18 and 25 who's roaming around in Afghanistan or Iraq maybe ought to be a drone target because he might be up to bad things. It's really outrageous, wow. really outrageous. Wasn't Obama really hard on the media as well? Like, didn't he incarcerate more journalists yes. than anybody else? Which is, again, yes. also surprising because he... Yes, very surprising, you're right. I think there were nine or ten 
the cases brought against American journalists for printing information that, that the Obama administration viewed as classified. Trump is on pathway to outdo even that number. But yeah, that was a big disappointment because I'm a big Obama fan, but mm -hmm. he disappointed, and disappointed me and others in some important ways. Dr. Locke Kingsford-Johnson is the Regents Professor of Public and International Affairs at University of Georgia, as well as a Meeks Distinguished Teaching Professor. He is the author of over 200 articles and essays and the author or editor of 30 books on U.S. national security. A special thank you to Athens-based band Miss Nomer for letting us use their song Justice Part 1 as our theme song. To hear more of their music, check out their website, misnomersound.com. For more information about UGA School of Public and International Affairs, check out our website or follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to catch all the episodes in our fall podcast series. You can find them on our website, spia.uga.edu, as well as on SoundCloud, iTunes, CastBox, Google Play, and Stitcher.